0: Hello, welcome to the March 2009 podcast for the Lancet Infectious Diseases. Richard Lane here, and I'm joined by TLID's editor, John McConnell. And John, unusual for TLID, we have a themed issue on tuberculosis.
1: Yes, Richard, we've devoted most of this issue to uh, TB in celebration of World TB Day, which is on March the 24th this year. And as one of the, other, the writers of one of the papers in this issue points out, that the reason March 24th is chosen is because that was the date in uh, 1882 that Robert Koch announced that he discovered the organism which is co- which causes TB, which is Mycobacterium tuberculosis, of course.
0: Indeed, and John, we're going to discuss some of the reviews in in some detail in a moment, but you know, 1882, I reckon that's about 127 years ago that we've known about TB. So in terms of the 21st century, how would you just briefly summarise the main challenges that we face in terms of um, tuberculosis, diagnosis and treatment?
1: Well, of course, we have known what causes TB for a very long time. We've had ways of diagnosing it for a very long time. And we've had vaccines and drugs for a very long time as well. And I, I think, Perhaps the main challenge is that these tools are now extremely old. So, for example, the vaccine, which is widely used, the BCG vaccine—I mean, that's now around about 80 years old. It's not effective in all settings; far from it. The antibiotics are the most recent one. I think was introduced in the 1960s. So, these are becoming um, outdated, and the regimens which we use to treat tuberculosis take far too long to be effective. So, you have problems of drug compliance and the development of resistance, and the tools which we use to diagnose tuberculosis—they are ancient sputum smear testing, chest radiography, for example, just something as simple as a symptoms questionnaire. These are very old tools and we need something much more quicker, much more accurate, much more cheaper than, than we do ha- have available at the moment, particularly in resource-poor settings.
0: Thanks for that, John. And let's go on and just discuss in a little bit more detail the review articles that cover tuberculosis in this March issue. Let's start off with one looking at biomarkers for tuberculosis. First of all, can you just, as a context here, it talks about the the global plan for getting rid of TB. Can you just crystallise what that is?
1: The idea is uh, the the Stop TB Initiative, which is an initiative which stems from the the World Health Organisation, what they aim to do is to detect 70% of new tuberculosis cases which arise each year and to successfully treat 85% of those that that are detected. The problem is that the test which they use for detection is sputum smear microscopy and that is now, we now realise that that can be quite inaccurate and can miss lots of patients in an era when we have Ongoing HIV and TB pandemics because a lot of people who are presenting with TB don't actually have sputum smear positive TB and they have manifestations of TB in, in places other than the lungs. So, what we need is some sort of way of detecting TB, which doesn't rely upon sputum smear microscopy. So we need some sort of alternative biomarker, some sort of chemical test, which point-of-care test, which we can apply at the bedside, or when the patient presents at a clinic, which will diagnose much more accurately than the tools we have available now, whether the person has TB or not. And, and if we have such an accurate test, then we can then go on to apply that in situations where we're testing out new vaccines or new drugs to determine whether the person has been cured of their tuberculosis or whether the vaccine has worked successfully uh, and they have protective immunity against tuberculosis. So we need a new biomarker to uh, not not only to determine uh, for diagnostic purposes, but also so that we can conduct tests of drugs and vaccines and we can do them in a fairly rapid and efficient manner.
0: Next, John, another review, and this is looking at multi-drug resistant TB or MDR-TB, and obviously this is a relatively recent phenomenon. Can you just tell us how serious an issue this is at the moment?
1: Well, it's a growing phenomenon. I think the number of patients who have multi-drug resistant TB is about half a million every year. It's coming to be around about 10% of all those patients who are newly diagnosed with TB each year. The problem is that the drug regimens which are required to treat multi-drug resistant TB are the so-called second line drugs. They are much more expensive than the first line drugs. They are a lot less available than the first line drugs. And effective treatment can take up to 18 months to produce a cure. What the author of this review on successful interventions in MDR-TB have looked at is is that those aspects of MDR treatment programs which have a beneficial effect. Now they've determined that there was no single aspect of all the various MDR-TB programs which was on its own beneficial. But if you combine treatment for at least 18 months plus directly observed therapy so that you're observing that the people who have MDR-TB are compliant with their drug regimen, if you combine those two things then those are the elements which together are beneficial in an MDR treatment programme. Of course that doesn't actually move us on that much because it means that we still are left with the drug regimen which requires 80 months to produce a cure so we are definitely going to need new drugs which are active against tuberculosis and which will produce a cure in much less time.
0: Yes John and just a quick word on DOTS, directly observed therapy, obviously that is always desirable but practically... There's, a, there's always a weakness with this idea.
1: Practically very difficult because you actually require the person who's being treated to return to the clinic every time that they take their drugs so that they can be observed to be taking the drugs. Or alternatively, then you need health workers out in the community um, who will observe that the, the patient is actually taking the drugs in their home. So uh, it is a, a, a practically a, a difficult strategy to implement, but it is one element which produces a success in a treatment regimen.
0: Also, John, a review, and this is looking at co-infection, people who have tuberculosis who also have HIV infection. This obviously has been a massive problem over the past quarter century since HIV AIDS emerged. Where are we now? What's the main issue here still?
1: Well, this review really tells us what the the problems are, but it doesn't offer any clear solutions. And and I think it's fairly obvious that there were clear solutions, then we'd be implementing them already. Certainly with HIV-TB co-pandemic, then again, we're back to the issue of establishing how difficult it can be to establish a diagnosis, that none of the methods which are currently used uh, are perfect. So that's culturing the bacteria, mycobacterial culture, symptom screening, sputum microscopy, chest radiography, and tuberculin skin testing. None of those are perfect. None of those produce a result which is absolutely reliable, and they can tend to miss many patients. So the real message of this review is that we still need a diagnostic test which can be used at the point of care, which is cheap, which is absolutely essential in resource-limited settings, which is rapid, and which is a sensitive and reliable test. In effect, we need to establish a new gold standard for the diagnosis of TB, and we are still some way off that. And I think we will remain, there's a a real worry that we will remain some way away from providing that new tool in the current financial crisis when funding for new research into diagnostics, into drugs, into vaccines is liable to become more limited. So there's a real urgency in keeping tuberculosis at the top of funders, governments and uh, NGOs funding priorities, keeping TB at the